When the story collection Maggie Brown and Others was first released, the New York Times described the author Peter Orner as, quote, a writer's writer. That is high praise, high praise indeed, and unequivocally appropriate. This is Book Public from Texas Public Radio. I'm Yvette Benavides. It's true, Peter Orner is without a doubt a writer's writer. The cryptic tribute extends to the author's body of work. He has consistently wowed readers with all six of his books, two novels, three story collections, and a memoir of linked essays. Peter Orner's latest book, Maggie Brown and Others, is a collection of 44 stories and a novella. The stories are set in places on the West Coast, in the Midwest, and then in the eastern part of the country. They're based on Orner's own experiences in these varied geographical spaces, but he's created a world of unforgettable characters. Peter Orner is a great story writer in part because he is a great reader of stories. He once wrote, quote, Stories, both my own and those I've taken to heart, make up whoever it is that I've become. We recently discussed Maggie Brown and others, but also the author's profound and infectious love for stories and the masters of the form. I'm going to start with a question about Maggie Brown and others. So the paperback was recently released. It's just over a year since the hardback came out. How has it been different for you to watch this book and these stories reemerge a year later when so much has happened to us <laughs> as a country in this last year? That's a great, it's a great question. It, uh, you know, it's my sixth book, so it's 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 not my first go around. But this is certainly the strangest, um, you know, time for me as it is for most anybody. So, you know, uh, it was sort of almost like a reminder of what I do and what I have been doing when it showed up at my door, uh, in a way that that you know I'd almost sort of um, forgotten about it in, in a sense. You know, I sort of let it let it go, and the book was sort of out there. Um, got a very good response, but to see it sort of reemerge in this sort of like ordinary way, moving on to paperback, which is usually quite thrilling to see that. Uh, no, it didn't have that quite that feeling this time. But I feel like it's it's gotten some nice attention, and I can't help but think that it's because of exactly what we're all going through. Like, we just need stories like these. Uh, it's just my sense of things. Yeah, well, I'd say, I mean, I think, I think I, I've noticed this that people have a need i know i have it myself uh, for things to slow down and uh and i think that um uh i think st stories do that better than almost anything you know and 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 so i think when we're all sort of in our houses and having a little more time to think um i think you know i think stories are really becoming more important to some people i've seen well you write novels and nonfiction, but i consider you something of a short story guru. I feel like there's something that you know that the rest of us are always trying to figure out. I mean, that's just how I feel about it. Um, but I also think that some of that knowledge and wisdom just comes from the fact of your own deep and wide reading of 
the masters of the short story form. I have the sense that you love to write them because you love to read them. Um, it's absolutely true. I mean, that's, that's it. I, I spent all morning today um, rereading a, a little tiny Kafka story called First Sorrow. It's about a trapeze artist who doesn't want to get off the trapeze. He only wants to be on the trapeze all the time, either practicing or resting. The problem is, is you know, because he works in a circus, you got to go from town to town. So they have to figure out how to get the trapeze artist to the next venue. And that becomes a real, an incredibly enormous existential, that sounds a little haughty. It becomes a, pro, a, a real logistical problem to get to get this guy. And I spent literally all morning sort of musing on it, thinking about it, like what is going on in this story? And I, yeah, exactly. I had the impulse, like you suggest, I had an impulse to try and say something as baffling as that myself. And so I do, you know, I, I, I thank you very much for the thoughts on, on the stories. And it, they, there's, there is something about them that, that just always reels me in and is, you know, the, the, the kind of way that they're almost hermetically sealed, you know, and and yet they seem to kind of go on forever. That's how I feel about this Kafka story. So, yeah, I'm always trying to, you know, to uh, to emulate and look up to and respect the, those who come before. Your collection of essays from 2016, uh, Am I Alone Here?, brought about for me that thing that happens when you're reading someplace and you come across an idea that's so resonant that you feel that the author read your mind or your journal or something, <laughs> and you want to tap the shoulder of the guy next to you, you know, at the coffee shop or wherever, and say, you're not going to believe this. Listen <clears throat> to this. Um, your love for the writers whose work you discuss in that book um, are some of my, fr my favorites. I don't know if – I think we're similar in age, but we're, you and I are pretty different. I'm from the Texas-Mexico border. I'm Mexican-American. I'm Catholic. But – I feel like we somehow walk this same path to some of these authors that you cover in this book. And it occurred to me, it can't be that uncanny. It's just that <laughs> people often um, will say to me that this other book has meant so much to them, too, because they feel so similarly about these authors. Do you get that a lot from people about that book? Uh Yes, I, weirdly. I mean, it's, it's been a very, that book has also been a pretty weird experience. But I got, I got to say, just to back up is, you know, I can kind of spot a story reader a mile away. <laughs> you know, you can, there's a certain sense that story readers have with each other, the sense of excitement about this particular form, which is, you know, we're very much in the minority of the universe, right? Everybody is kind of, What's what's your big you know okay great you wrote a story now you got to move on to the big one right you know and 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 you know tell that to Chekhov right he didn't he never felt that way even though towards the end of his life he wrote longer so uh, yeah you know strange oddly enough the Am I Alone here just got uh, published in Spanish recently and um, it's actually out in Argentina and I've gotten uh, more more feedback from folks in Argentina than I have on almost any other thing I've done. And it's been uh, really gratifying and extremely odd. But I have all sorts of new friends now. Wow. That's, so, that's so beautiful to, to think that. And you do cover such a wide range of authors, um, 
like Juan Rulfo, for for instance, it's just such yes. a so, so interesting, such a diverse uh, group of authors. Well, you know, you like you said, like I mean, I I think I, I've always felt like you find your kin's people in odd in, in places where you may not have expected them. I mean, my heritage is you know Eastern European Jews, and I look to a lot of those writers, mm-hmm. Isaac Babel and others, Kafka is you know, is kind of part of what I do, part of the DNA of what I do. And yet, if it wasn't for somebody like Juan Rufo, I'm not sure I would have figured out how to take another, to take another step forward in what I do. I mean, Rufo blew the the doors off uh, the story for me uh, in in, in The Burning Plane and those stories. The, the, The sense of sort of intimacy that he has with his characters. And yet, you know, there's a there there is this sort of intimacy, and yet he's sort of looking at them from up in the sky. It's, it's so strange. And again, another another writer that I've tried to, you know, look up to and respect on the page. I hear that my education in my teen years in literature was Jewish writers, and it's a long story, but it <laughs> has to do with books that were available to me over a few summers when I was growing up. Right. And the ones that spoke to me probably for their themes of alienation, you know, Malamud and Bello. Mm-hmm. Um, so what is it from, you mentioned Isaac Babel, what is it from some of those authors that we might see as an influence in Maggie Brown? I, I feel like, I think I know, but I, I'd love to hear that from you. Sure, it's a beautiful story about Malamud and just that, that you know, that, uh, that and, and I'm a big fan of Bellow, although not as a person, I should say. Uh, I think as a person, he had a lot of, <laughs> a lot to, a lot to speak for, uh, to, to answer for, let's say. Uh, Malamud, though, I think kind of speaks from the corners. He whispers from the, you know, from the other side of the room, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so it's just so nice to hear him in this conversation, along with Juan Rufo and others that are you know, so important to me, and a number of women writers, we should say, also, um, Grace Paley and many others. But but uh, Isaac Babel, for me, um, and I think I'm always pronouncing his name wrong. I've been corrected. I believe it's called, his name is Isaac Babel. Uh, you know, he's a touchstone for me uh, because, I, I think, because of what he was able to do in a small space and and what he risked in a in a small space. I think he risked sort of saying things in, in, in almost grandiose ways in a small space. Mm-hmm. And so he wasn't, he wasn't willing to concede that a story couldn't be as powerful as, as anything else on the planet, including a great poem and a great novel. So, and speaking of women writers, uh, in the essay about Gina Berriol, which, yes. by the way, is a book I, I also have bought several times and pressed ah. into the hands of my <laughs> friends who love to read. And you described that faded red copy of the 1982 <laughs> North Point yes, Press. North Point, yes. I yes. have that book. <laughs> yeah, beautiful with the French flap. I right? love it. Um, I am looking at my copy right now, that russet color. Um, yeah. yeah. I recommended her work to a lot of people who have never heard of her, and I th- I, I want to say you're the first person I've ever talked to. <laughs> I don't know. That may say something about me, who know, who appreciates Gina Burial. So I just uh, appreciate that so much about um, Am I Alone Here? And and she not only influenced, she influences everything I do, but certainly the stories in Maggie Brown 
were, I, you know, I look to her to sort of, again, show me like what I can do. You know, people often describe her as a quiet writer. I don't find that, but I also found, find her not, she's not shouting either. <laughs> you know, she doesn't need to. And, and those stories are so um, uh, uh, strong and delicate at the same time, I think. And that's sort of what, you know, again, what she can do, what all these people, they all have this in common, like what they can do in a small space proves again and again how much power you can get in seven pages. And Burial, you know, to me, she's at the very, very top. And it's so nice to hear. And believe me, I've met very few people, even in the Bay Area, where I lived for many years, who, who who know of her, even even after Women in Their Beds did well in mm-hmm. 1999 and she, you know, won a big award and there she was, it, it lasted about five minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, but the thing is, I also think people who need burial find her, you know, and I think people, anyone listening to this, if you're looking for an American writer who you may not have heard of, that um, that is speaking very much to today's moment, I would I would look to her like a place where we're, we're sort of in a almost chaotic, baffled sense, and yet we're also in this looking for a quiet space. I would look to her. Yes, I, I encountered her during a kind of a difficult period in my life, and uh, it, it makes me almost emotional to just even <laughs> utter her name. So. Me too, me too. <laughs> um, so... One more question about Am I Alone here. I know you're a huge Eudora Welty fan. Mm-hmm. What is it about her? I- I've gone back and, and reread uh, things she's written and interviews with her. And of course, she's incredibly interesting. But I'd like to know, and, I, and I've read what you've written as well, but sure. if you had to explain it just in a few sentences, what is it about her? Because um, as we're trying to look underneath the fabric of the cross-stitch to see how you create your work. I'll be honest with you, sometimes I turn over the fabric to see where the welty stitches are discernible, you know, um, and to try to trace some of those lines. I'm, ju- I'm just curious about sure. what she yeah. is I mean, you're, this is <laughs> how much time you got. <laughs> yeah. uh, this is, <laughs> this is like, I'm, you know, I, I just picked up my kids from school. I'm all sweaty from riding my bike, and I'm like, I get to talk about burial and welty and Babel and Malibu. I mean, this is what a blast. It's purely self-indulgent uh, here. <laughs> right. Well, welty, you know, where to begin? I'll try and be brief. Um, you know, people look at her, you look at a picture of Welty and you see like a little old lady sitting on her porch in, in Jackson, Mississippi, having tea, right? You know, kind of harmless. And, and, and like, like Barry Alt and like Babel and like these other people who seemingly speak, or Malibu especially, seemingly speak quietly, are, re- are really speaking with uh, power and also even rage. I mean, Welty, some of her stories... I think in particular of Where Is This Voice Coming From, which was written uh, after Medgar Evers was killed in Jackson, Mississippi, uh, by a you know crazy white supremacist lunatic. Uh, she sat down and wrote maybe a five- or six-page story from the point of view of the shooter. It was so shocking and intense and apparently so accurate that, and this might be apocryphal, but that the police actually interviewed her to ask her how she knew so much about this about the right wing guy who killed her, who killed Medgar Evers. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, she understood what was driving the anger and the rage 
and you know the lunacy in this guy. And to me, what she represents is the great ability, not just in that character, which is actually you know fairly outlier in her work, but as somebody who teaches me how important it is to, as a story writer or any writer, to try and step and and be in someone else's shoes and then imagine from there. And and I think she does that in 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 everything she ever did. And my favorite, just to throw out, is a story called The Wanderers, which is in the Golden Apples, which is um, a story about a, a a young woman who returns back to her hometown, having sort of been a failure, you know, Virgie. And I I love that character, and she speaks to me all the time. Let's talk about Walt. And Sarah, sure. <laughs> your novella um, in the Maggie Brown book, Walt Kaplan is broke. Um, it comes at the end of this collection of the 44 stories in Maggie Brown. We've seen Walt before, and here he is again. Why is he back again? Uh, I, I can't, I can't, I can't shake him. You know, <laughs> I, uh, I. This is where I become. This is where the story writer in me sort of morphs into you know, novella writer or novelist or whatever, um, I always find that when a character, I can't really leave them behind, even after I have killed them, and I've killed Walt a number of times before this book. Uh, he is just one of these characters that continues to whisper in my ear. And so I, you know, I see the world a little bit through the eyes of this furniture store owner in the 1970s in Fall River, Massachusetts, who's roughly based on my grandfather, who I lost when I was 10 or so, a little bit older maybe, uh, and I never knew. And so I think in part, I think this character is an attempt for me to know him, you know, through fiction. I know your story, The Raft, was made into a film that started Asner, and you said that you want your writing to evoke the movie in our minds. Uh, versus, you know, having uh, one of your books adapted to film. I have to say that you did that with Walt Kaplan is Broke. I was wishing when I first read it and when I reread it again recently that everyone could hear the dialogue in that story and how pitch perfect it is and could be coming out of the mouths of the right actors. But then I thought, what, what actors? <laughs> so I hear you. Most times when I watch actors anymore, I, I don't see the pure characters. I see like, you know, De Niro playing someone. So um, nothing against De Niro. But so I like this idea from you that you don't need to filter anyone through some like Hollywood lens, like literally or figuratively. You can just create them in your own head. And I didn't really picture Ed Asner in my mind, by the way, <laughs> in the movie in my mind. But um, He was very generous. And I, 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 they made the movie a few years ago, but I've see, I, see, I saw him recently. He was just passing through town. He was playing God in a, <laughs> in a play. And uh, it was just wonderful to see him. And um, he's been so generous to me over the years. Uh, I, I, but I do want to say about about Walt is um, I, I, just about voices. I uh, they we, we made the book into an audio book recently, and um, and they had some great actors lined up to do the book, which I thought was great. But for Walt and that novella that you mentioned, I pretty much insisted that that I was the only one who could do it. Mm. 
I don't know if I did a good job or not, <laughs> but the voice is mine. And so um, on the audio book, I, I really tried to give a little bit of voice to what I was hearing in my head. I'm sure I didn't, I'm sure I failed at that, but I gave it a shot. Well, as we say in radio, if the writing works, the, the, everything else follows. So I'm sure it was, it was perfect. Yeah, I hope so. It was very difficult. <laughs> hours and hours oh, yeah. of taking and, you know, and trying to, I, what, I, what I was afraid of, I think, is I was afraid that an actor would oversell, you know, the mm-hmm. sort of Jewish vernacular that I, that I was practicing in that, mm-hmm. in that novella. And I didn't want to, I just, you know, he's just an ordinary guy. He's not, you know, he isn't anybody special. He doesn't talk in a, any kind of clever way. He just talks. And so um, I wanted to capture that. I do, it does somehow put me in the mind of a, a for no reason, of a film like um, Crossing Delancey. Did you ever see that movie? I did. I so, something Something about, about yeah. that. Um, yeah. So the the line, one of the lines in the scene with um, with Walt and Sarah about the Pringles, <laughs> the Pringles potato chips, and he has the can of Pringles right there in the bedroom, and gives her her chip, and he has his chip. Oh, just details like that that they're so specific that they just land as you know, like so real, <laughs> so so perfect. <laughs> yeah, I, I, he keeps the can under the bed, you know, in case yeah. he gets hungry. Is that kind of? I mean, why not? <laughs> it rings so true. Um, you wrote in your essay about William Trevor um, that he's this lurker. He he was, um, and how his observations sort of land in the pages of his stories uh, through these characters that that he creates, and that you're the same way, and you're always recording details of people's lives as you observe them all around you how in the world are you managing that right now during the pandemic that's a great question i i don't know if you saw in the new york times there's an article about this irish pub and this guy looking out the window and a photograph of him and him and how it sort of resonated across ireland this photograph in sort of capturing the moment Mm. for the whole country i thought of trevor when i saw that for sure um, you know, it's been, my bread and butter is overhearing and eavesdropping and listening to people, and that certainly has gotten a lot harder. And now, now with everyone with a mask on, we hope, uh, <laughs> you know, I, I can't read expressions. <laughs> you know, it's, it's very, it's it's definitely become, I, I, I feel like I've retreated a little bit. Um, and, 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 you know, I go in, I don't know if you're this way or, but, uh, you know, I, I go in cycles in terms of what are my preoccupations are. And uh, I think when I'm in a when – I, when I'm feeling limited um, after the death of my father was sort of what the trigger was for am I alone here, I feel like the pandemic in a way has sent me um, back to, to books again, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. whereas with Maggie Brown, because I was inspired by what was going on around me, what I was picking up on the street. And I feel like because I can't do that as much, I've retreated a little bit. I didn't think of it until you said it. Um, at the moment, you know, that's sort of where I'm at. Is I'm, I'm books and life in the books are where I'm looking for a lot of my thoughts. Mm-hmm. Well, like you, I find that the best thing to do when I'm writing and I hit a wall is read. And Sandra Cisneros once said in an interview that 
she said something like, I only write the things I like, or words to that effect. And I figure that she means, I mean, it has to be fun, pleasurable, it has to feel good, it has to feel right. When I read on social media, writers saying that writing is torture, or it's drudgery, or it's punishing, I can only imagine that maybe what they really mean is that life is pulling at them in so many different directions in so many different ways that the idea of writing becomes painful maybe because they're not there fully focused wholeheartedly because there's so much else that's eclipsing our sense of joy all the time right now um but something about your writing i feel like for you it it's work but it's it's like sandra cisneros says but it's it, it I only write the things I like. <laughs> it has to be on that level. I mean, I think that's a, you should, you should, that should be a mantra for everybody, you know. <laughs> and you can feel it when when that's not the case. And that doesn't mean we're talking about joyful work, and especially in Cisneros' case. It's not, you know, always joyful work that's coming out of it. But it gives her pleasure, which is different, right, mm-hmm. than, than it being somehow, you know, kind of joyful and affirming for for no reason, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you have to earn that. But, I mean, my sense is, is if it isn't, and if you're thinking it's drudgery, you know, then maybe do something else, you know? And uh, and I, that sounds more like the commodification of words, which God knows we have um, seen. I mean, there's just... I mean, my, my take is, is there's so much out there, so many words that, you know, we ought to start thinking they're a little more precious. Hmm. I like that. Well, so you teach at Dartmouth now, and you were at San Francisco State for a number of years. What makes you happy or brings you joy about this, the students in creative writing classes and MFA programs today? Do you have ever have these moments of like, ah, uh, yes, you know, this we're in good hands. <laughs> they understand. They read. They they try these things. They know these things. I do. I mean, I do. I, I, I've been I've been very lucky. I, I had a, a great run at San Francisco State, and some of the best students I will ever have uh, were in the graduate program there, which is an outstanding program. And um, I was very sad to leave, but uh, sometimes you got to move on. And um, I, I what I see in my students here at Dartmouth and and also at State is. You know, what, the most exciting thing is to, like, introduce them to writers who are going to kind of blow their minds and be like, oh, damn, I can do that. You know, I can even I can think that way. I can shape a story that way. Uh, I, I, I taught, it, it, just as an example, I, I taught um, uh, story collection, which I, I, you probably know of. It's uh, Let the Dead Bury Their Dead by Randall Keenan. Oh, my goodness, uh, yes. When I taught Let the Dead Bury Their Dead... At, at Dartmouth last quarter, um, there was an incredible amount of excitement in in his, in the way that he told stories. They just they were like, "Wow, you can have like people, you know, people like angels dropping on people's lawns, really?" And like, you know, or you can you know you can have, I mean, you know, tractors taking flight, but it's all kind of in 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 a realistic sense. <laughs> so yeah. I mean, Keenan is a wonderful, can is an absolutely wonderful, astonishing writer and. And to have them experience, you know, these stories of rural North Carolina in, you know, like you said, like, you know, you don't know where 
things are going to come from in terms of what's going to inspire you. I was amazed. These kids, a lot of them from Manhattan, were like, damn, these stories about, you know, about this little town called Tim's Creek in North Carolina. This is what's blowing my mind. I can't believe the sense of imagination, the sense of freedom that, you know, Keenan gave them. And so that to me spoke volumes in terms of being hopeful because I'm sure they don't read a blog post and feel the same way, right? Mm-hmm. Not to say that there aren't very inspiring and essential blog posts. There are, you know. So, but I felt I felt I felt heartened by their response to that book last last semester, last quarter. I'm glad you you mentioned him. I've been thinking a lot about him. I I did not know him. I met him once in, at Sewanee, and I sat in an audience, you know, with. 150 other people with their mouths hanging open because he just was so amazing. But yeah, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm yeah, glad just, you. Just so sad, and yeah. I, you know, you did know him because that's him right there. I mean, you, 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 you can, he was sort of that kind of person, that kind of writer. Like, you know, all those people in that room probably mm-hmm. felt felt it, and you know, that way of connecting to people. Exactly. Yeah. Well, you're probably working on. Um, I, I wish I could say you're working on the next collection of short stories because I just love short stories. But uh, you must be working on a novel. Uh, I, 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 you know, I'm working on a, a, a two kids and uh, uh, trying to keep my head together with uh, somewhat remote learning and yeah. you know, some in-person learning and all of that. But, um, you know, stories are always brewing, and I spent the morning, like I said, <laughs> kind of, thinking about them, not necessarily writing them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, but I will definitely have a, you know, with God willing or whoever controls these matters, uh, <laughs> another story collection in the next few years for sure. So oh. whether people want it or not, and I'm going to send it directly to you. Oh, good. <laughs> I hope we can, we can talk My again. My publisher will groan. <laughs> <laughs> but I'll say, Yvette, is what she has? <laughs> I don't get that. I, I mean, I just feel like that's the short story collection. That's I don't know what it is. It, that's just uh, you know, I guess I just from a very young age that was where it was at for me. But I love novels. I love poetry. I love nonfiction. But there's just something about the short story. You know, and 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 no one's been able to very adequately explain this, and I really love that. <laughs> you know, we can try. <laughs> we can try. But it's really, you know, people, the commentary on, the commentariat about <laughs> novels, the commentariat about poetry, it's all there. But the amount written about short stories is so small. Mm-hmm. It's fascinating. And it's because, because, it's because people are like, well, just, you got to read it, you know. Yeah. And if it hits you in the gut, it hits you in the gut, you know. Otherwise, it doesn't, and you move on, you know. The worst thing in the whole world is a story that doesn't work, but... Um, no, I shouldn't say that. It's not the worst. <laughs> well, I used to quote uh, Frank O'Connor to my students, but now now I quote Peter Orner talking about Frank O'Connor <laughs> to my students. So he was a cantankerous old bastard, but he was certainly uh, he certainly knew like nobody. And you know, like I, it's so nice to hear that. But uh, I I think that uh, O'Connor he was as opinionated as a short story writer should be. Uh, <laughs> He wasn't always right. Yeah. But, uh, I love what that. What he said about Catherine Mansfield, I have never forgiven him for. Oh, yeah, yeah. 
That's a whole but, other podcast you know, episode. Yeah, and he just didn't quite, you know, he didn't quite, right? I mean, it just it wasn't the right time. He didn't, he didn't get her. He didn't get her. He didn't get but, her. But, you know, that's it's because he was human, right? And <laughs> other things, paternalistic bastard, too. But, you know, he, he just, he didn't, he, he missed something there. Yeah. It would have helped him. So. Yeah. Peter, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. I'm such a fan of your work. It's just, it's oh. such an honor and such a thrill to get to talk to you. Honored to talk to you, Yvette, really. Peter Orner is the author of Maggie Brown and Others. It's published by Little Brown. Peter Orner holds the professorship in English and Creative Writing at Dartmouth. This has been Book Public from Texas Public Radio. Write to us at bookpublic at tpr.org. Jacob Rosati composed our theme music. Bree Kirkham is our digital producer. Dan Katz is Texas Public Radio's news director. I'm Yvette Benavides. 